This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. And yes. take it away. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, the last thing was uh, how do we get people to act appropriately? So th- this is the big problem that that is a difference between what I would say my point of view is and what much of the left is. The left is many people on the left are very skeptical of carbon taxes, and it's a persistent problem. Some people say, well, a carbon tax is just a nudge. Some people say carbon tax is a way of letting people pay to pollute. Uh, Some people say carbon tax is enabling capitalism. Think, some people, some just, people just think. Some people just think that price signals are very weak, and that people don't generally pay attention to prices. And, and from, uh, from my perspective, resistance. I think the vast majority of the left wants a carbon tax. I think the number one concern of the left with the carbon tax is that it will scare away the right, so it would never get implemented. So it's a solution that's like thrown out there as an idea just to kill any progress. So I don't think the left is against a carbon tax by and large. I think mostly very much for one. They're just scared of it being too scary for the right. But, but yeah. It depends on who you read. I, I see a great deal of resistance to carbon taxes on the right. Uh, I see that. In, uh, I mean, you see that in the Green New Deal itself, uh, which uh, really doesn't mention the concept. There's some very feeble general uh, hand-waving references in there that that you can uh, possibly hang a carbon tax on. But people are not – so I my position is, okay, suppose we take uh, all of the regulatory measures that are in the Green New Deal and in the uh, – left package of climate measures, even those, let's not replace those with a carbon tax, uh, which I know some doctrinaire economists say, well, if the tax is high enough, we don't need anything else. Let's not pursue that line of thought, even though it's theoretically elegant. Let's just take something practical, like what are we going to do about cafe standards? There's a big argument over cafe standards now, and the uh, um, Trump administration's uh, efforts to drive them back. But my point is that CAFE standards are an example of a regulatory approach to uh, emissions that's not very effective. It causes a lot of annoyance uh, to consumers because it drives up the price of cars. 
and so Trump can get points by backing off of cafe standards and saying, okay, you can get cheaper vehicles and so forth. But, car, but cafe standards aren't very effective because they don't do anything to prevent people from, buy, from driving their efficient cars uh, because they guarantee that gas prices will remain cheap. Um, if anything, they drive gasoline prices down and encourage drivings. So why not at least supplement cafe standards with increased gas prices? So it's through a gasoline tax or a broader carbon tax, it'll work better. But, you know, you get pushback on that, too, uh, that, you, that, that there's a lot of resistance to the whole concept of uh, uh, carbon tax, even if it's supplemented by regulatory measures that I see. So let me pull out a couple of pieces from this because you and I agree on this. Um, we, we, I think we disagree on how heavily we'd weight upon it. Um, I'll just quote uh, one of your articles, economists, myself included, included, who see carbon taxes as obviously the best tool of climate policy. I, I don't agree with that. I agree that it's one of the good tools, um, but that's just a, a difference in weighting. Um, we agree that it's, you know, both are, you know, you would tend to lean more heavily on it. I would tend to lean a little less heavily on it, but that's a discussion, but um, that's statement one. Statement two, okay. I'm going to separate your assertion of ineffectiveness because of political pushback from effectiveness of the policy otherwise. Okay. Um, because part of the discussion you and I had was that carbon taxes become ineffective because they're subject to political whipsawing, as we saw in Australia, as we saw in British Columbia, as we saw in the last Canadian election, um, by people who attack them, even when they get up to levels that are grossly inadequate. One of the other articles you pointed me to was the study um, that had posited that the appropriate social cost of carbon was $417 US um, median, 165 mm -hmm. to $902. Um, and that, you know, many people when polled were in the 150 to 200 range. You know, certainly the last numbers right. I've seen were the 150 right. to 200 range. And yet the highest price on carbon that we've seen globally outside of, I think it's Norway, is like 20 bucks US. A lot of that is due to political pushback and demonization. And this is why I say when you say cafe approaches are ineffective because of political pushback and getting points, you have to separate that effectiveness of the approach from the political angle and view them as two axes of a, a, an assessment. Uh, I agree that the second is important, but that's not saying that it's inefficient. It's just saying we have to consider both. Mm -hmm. right. well, it's, I mean, what you say is true. Uh, any action which causes uh, short-term discomfort is going to get political pushback because most people vote on the basis of fairly uh, immediate concern, or at least enough people do that, that, uh, that you get a lot of political pushback. Um, you get political pushback on the left from the idea that carbon taxes hurt the poor. Uh, so, yeah, and that's actually a fair statement. And you have to design policy that prevents them from being hurt in the pocketbook today and only get compensated next year. Right. You know, that's one of the challenges of um, also electric car rebates. An electric car rebate at purchase is very different 
from a purchasing perspective from a rebate which you get on your taxes a year later. Right. This is a policy design um, consideration. That's right. Yeah, and yep. you know, and we may very well for the bottom twenty percent of the uh, socioeconomic bracket, regardless of approach, require varied solutions to provide them more direct assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, you know, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm working with the government of Canada, National Resources Canada, on uh, leading practices for managed retreat in adaptation from climate change. Um, you know, and as we survey the literature globally from Germany and France and New Zealand and Australia and Japan, one of the threads that draws out in Sandy and Houston and New Jersey and New Orleans, one of the threads that gets drawn out is the inability of the lowest socioeconomic class to move because they have no resources to move. It doesn't matter if you buy their property. They just don't have the capacity to get up and go. Right. And so you have to have differentiated policies to assist them more vigorously. But that's a differentiation in policy. Right. Um, back to the question, though, I'm, I'm just, you know, thinking back to this communication. Um, so there's there's two or three pieces to pull out. First is, I believe that one of the things I'm hearing you say is that the Niskanen Center and you in your Niskanen, work, Niskanen, Niskanen. <laughs> I was trying to get it right and I failed miserably. Um, I can't even blame my Finnish friend from high school because, you know, that was a long time ago. But the Niskanen Center, um, is it arguable that you have a different audience than I have when I publish in Clean Technica, obvious. I think that's a fairly clear statement. Or when I publish in Medium, which is once again quite a substantially different audience. You know, the Medium Gen publication, for example, that I published recently um, was specifically, um, just so you know, was how to c- communicate to rural conservatives about climate change. Okay, I missed that one. But. And it was it was triggered by a discussion. A Oregon State rural representative, Democratic, who'd survived the recall motion that had been put forward, reached out to me and said, "Mike, help me. How do I get through to these people?" <laughs> and, you know, so it was once again that question of differentiating the audience and saying, "What audience am I trying to reach with this? Through what channel? And what can I get them to do?" You are quite rightly saying that a message that is anti-capitalist is not going to resonate with the 10% of Republicans. Mm-hmm. So we, we're not disagreeing with that. And I'm agreeing with you that there is some rhetoric on the left, which is overly amplified by those on the right, framing once again of the communication, which is anti-capitalist. It's not representative of the debate within the Democratic candidates, however. If we look at the actual Democratic candidates, um, you know, for Bernie, for example, I lean into, you know, I'm, I've lived in Europe, I've lived in, I'm a Canadian, I live in a social democracy mm-hmm. that is more like what Bernie envisions. I have universal health care, um, you know, it's just what is kind of the standard, everybody has it except you guys. Um, and so I get what he's saying and that it's not anti-capitalist because I live within a very capitalist construct. And you, I'm, I'm trying to remember the countries you explicitly um, worked in and taught in in Europe. You did have a European sojourn. Yeah, I spent about 25 years 
teaching in Europe, but that was uh, a little bit different. Uh, that was in all in the former uh, communist countries rather than <laughs> in Western Europe. Uh, that would be a very different experience. Yes, it was. It was. It was quite different. But uh, to get back to um, social democrat and democratic socialist, um, those those really aren't the same thing. And they're poorly labeled. In the, in, the Scannon Center, in the Scannon Center, although we don't particularly go out of our way to use the term, is basically, um, uh, you know, we're social democrats. Okay. Uh, in the sense that the term is used, in, if we were in Sweden, we would probably be identified as social democrats. Um, democratic socialism is different. Let's go back to the Green New Deal. See, we all read the same documents, and there are different things in there that, that annoy us. Okay. Fair. If you read the Green New Deal, there's one of the problems with the Green New Deal is that it's packed full of the whole democratic socialist uh, ideology in addition to practical policies. And one of the things that pervades it over and over and over again is this idea that um, you have to uh, – the the concern with disadvantaged communities and uh, marginalized and disadvantaged communities, uh, people of color, transsexuals, um, and uh, poor people, all of these are, are a major area of concern. And what we want to do is give direct democratic authority uh, to them uh, in ways that in some, some cases undermine the uh, even climate action for example everything has to be done um, th they want like uh, with direct input from the local communities which to me sounds like it's opening a door to um, nimbyism you know there was when there's this big uh, fight in the dakotas over an oil pipeline that was supposed to go across uh, um, a reservation where the Native American councils were worried that somehow building that uh, pipeline, they argued that building that pipeline across was a desecration of land where their ancestors were buried and so forth. And so they, they tied up uh, the pipeline um, for years. As far as I know, it's still tied up over that issue. But so we all cheered that because we didn't want this pipeline to bring this horrible Alberta gunk down to us because it's bad stuff and ought to be left in the ground. But what if the issue, as it's been recently in eastern Oregon, is building uh, a power line to get uh, power from the uh, wind farms along the Columbia River to places where people need that or to get power from the Oklahoma panhandle to people in uh, the southeast. Uh, you get the, you're empowering these NIMBY forces by insisting that everything has to be filtered through the voices of the uh, local communities and disadvantaged communities. You give everybody a veto. Uh, and and it sort of scares me when I read those parts of the Green New Deal. If we, nothing's ever going to get done under that kind of thinking, 
So, so fair stuff there. So, you know, part of my background, you're a senior fellow with Niskanen. Did I get it right this time? Yes. The Niskanen Center. Uh, I can't promise not to, you know, regress. Um, I was senior fellow with the Energy and Policy Institute in Washington Distance for specifically with a focus on wind energy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, uh, I've had a global perspective on wind energy. I've dealt with um, wind energy nimbyism in Ontario, in Australia, in New Zealand, in, you know, Europe. Um, you know, had conversations around explicitly this thing. I'm not disagreeing with you that nimbyism is a concern. But let's tease apart the concerns that the Green New Deal is articulating around fairness for the uh, communities they identify. Um, so what they've identified, um, which is a true statement, so this is a statement I'm going to separate out again, identification of a problem from identification of a solution. This is the Naomi Klein problem, right? Okay. So let's just identify the problem and then articulate what the discussion and debates are. So the discussion of the problem is that the communities of color um, especially have been historically in the socioeconomic underclass dominantly dominated by various minority groups, have been historically in every transition burdened with the negative externalities to an inequitable extent. Okay. Um, now, I'm, I'm just going to assert that as a statement of the problem. Now, let's start with the statement of the problem. Do you agree or disagree with that? Have you seen the literature on that? Yeah. I mean, sure. The uh, colored people have always lived downwind from the smokestacks since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, as we look, uh, as in, you know, because I'm going through the literature on managed retreat now, I see this with Latino communities around Hurricane uh, Harvey and Houston, and some of the implications there. I see this with First Nations communities in Canada, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there, we agree on the problem. Um, we also agree that a transition is required, um, and that a solution. We probably let's test this axiomatic would be that a solution which we identify would have to not be inequitable for those people in the way it was in the past. Now that having identified a problem and having asserted that we are a rich country or countries need to have a solution, then we can start arguing about what solution we want to achieve. Is the Green New Deal perfect? No. Is it asserting that there's a problem and that there are some solution statements? Yes. Um, and the Green New Deal is much less prescriptive on the solutions than many of the campaigns are, by the way. Mm -hmm. so, you know, so once again, we separate the targets and the aspirational nature of the targets in the Green New Deal from the actual policy and approaches in the different campaign or, uh, material. You know, so, you know, and I'm, where I'm going with this is right now, the United States is having a debate with itself about market policies, about regulatory policies, about the best solutions for historic inequities. Um, but all of those debates are occurring within the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party is not present for any of the debates. Um, yeah, a lot of that. that's probably a fair statement. So attempting to get people, and this is back to the audience question, attempting to get the 10% of Republicans who might favor a carbon tax to the table, as opposed to 
getting them to understand the seriousness of the problem and the Republicans are missing in action mm-hmm. is a choice. Yeah. And once again, all those independents, that 38% of independents, who 68% of whom consider climate change serious or very serious, enhancing their awareness of the seriousness so that they will tend to be not motivated to vote for the the current party of climate change and science denial is just where the Republicans are right now. It's unfortunate. They've been better in the past. With luck, they'll be better in the future. That's where they are right now. Um, and get them to vote, motivate more of those people to vote for Democratic candidates and up and down the tickets in 2020 mm-hmm. is a useful choice. And motivating dem- the, the large number of people who are committed Democratic voters just to get out and vote, those are all very reasonable assertions. And that doesn't mean the Niskanen Center's approach is wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll make a compare and contrast. Um, you know Catherine Hayhoe? Yes. Have you, have you talked to her? Or? I haven't talked personally. I've occasionally exchanged uh, some correspondence. Yeah, me too. Um, and we observe her. Yeah. Right? And you know, she, like me, she's a Canadian. Um, and not unlike me, she lives in Texas. Uh, and, and very unlike me, she's an evangelical Christian. Yes. Christian um, climate stewardship, one of the leading voices. She's, she's Which awesome. is another another little wedge that you can drive into right-wing resistance to climate. Yep, absolutely. And by the way, uh, Latino evangelicals and Catholics are 77% um, on side with climate science and climate action. Mm-hmm. It's not Christian, it's yeah. white it's, evangelicals more than not. Yeah. Um, and then there's a subsets of the um, more fundamentalist Judaic groups and other groups like Catholics. But Catherine Hayhoe, the question there is, I don't even try to talk to the same audiences that Catherine does. Mm-hmm. I, I just say, I'm not the right person. I abdicate because I don't share their values. Mm-hmm. I can't draw the bridge of common values. I can't be considered an authority the way that Catherine is. Mm-hmm. I don't have the preconditions for success. Now, the Niskanen Center... Did I get it right again? Yes. Yes. Um, has the preconditions of success to talk to subsets of the economic community and subsets of the right. Yes. You know, uh, I'll, I'll just assert. Um, you. That's, no, that's true. That's the. That's very much how we characterize it. Yep. Um, but that also means that you're targeted in a specific place, in a specific niche that's a different one. And your choice is a very good and valid one. You've got a target. You've got an audience. Yeah. Um, I've got different audiences because I have different precursor conditions of success. But both of those are valid choices, not invalid choices. That's right. So this gets back to then the question of what is balance? And to be clear, I... You know, some people assume, assert that I'm a journalist, and I'm really not. <laughs> um, I, I am a communicator around climate action, and I'm a, I do work in this space. Um, I have an opinion, and I do research myself, but that doesn't make me a journalist. I, I'm not a, so I'm, if you want to assert that I in, in, have inappropriate journalistic balance, that is a completely fair assertion, and I accept that entirely. But let's actually test the question. For the okay. Let's step back then to you and I aren't journalists. True. So let's have the discussion about what journalists should do in terms of balance. 
So now that we've had some of these separation of audiences and separation of voting demographics and separation of the science, what's your, what's your current thought on the balance question for journalism in general? Well, partly balance means as, you know, like way back at the beginning, we said balance means representing accurately what uh, people say. And we don't want to say that uh, we accurately say that, you know, 98 or whatever percent of climate scientists think that there's a human element in uh, global warming, but it's not true to think say that 98% of climate scientists uh, think that the uh, Greenland ice cap will be completely melted by the end of the 21st century. Uh, and somewhere you have to accurately uh, portray what it is. You can't say that you can't, if you read a report and you don't understand it, you probably shouldn't write about it or you probably should ask somebody uh, you probably should run what you buy, run by them. Now I realize that journalists, newspaper journalists work on short deadlines and can't always do that. Um, so these are, these are statements I can agree with completely. So let's test some ideas. So should climate change denialist organizations be given any representation in mass media to provide balance? No, I don't think that, uh, balance necessarily requires you to uh, report on things that you believe to be wrong as if you had no opinion as to whether they were true or false. No. Yes. So once again, uh, whether you agree. Mention, mention them that they have, uh, you can say, uh, I, I think that you can say that this is what uh, Heartland Institute says uh, because, you know, they exist. They have a wide readership. You can't pretend they don't exist. Uh, but I think balance partly means, well, I don't know how to put this. I'll go back to what I said. You can mention all sides, but it, balance doesn't require you to pretend that things are true, which you know to be false. Yeah. And once again, we, we, we are more in agreement. It's nuances and questions of audiences that we're disagreeing on. So um, I, I'd like us to wrap up in the next few minutes. Just among other things, there's a three-year-old at a table in, you know, a Panetta somewhere in Florida. But I, I, she's very cute. But um, I'd like to lean into just one question. There's an interesting question, and this gets back to Kahneman. It gets back to behavioral economics. It gets back to cognitive science. I, I, I floated a testing question to you in one of our communications about where how you considered Kahneman's influence on economics. And, mm -hmm. you know, so um, I, I would love to hear your paraphrase of who Kahneman is and why he's significant and how significant. Well, Kahneman is a psychologist who has uh, – understanding of how people really think, whereas much of economics is still devoted to the model that uh, people are rational. 
And Kahneman said, no, they're not always rational. They have cognitive biases and confirmation biases and, and so forth. And as a result, sometimes uh, people's behavior is, is unexpected. And uh, then beyond that, behavioral economics establishes that people really do have other directed preferences and people aren't strictly uh, always selfish. So <laughs> these are very important reminders to economists who should have known better, but they, uh, they're still stuck in 19th century models of uh, strict rationality, which sometimes lead them to uh, very naive sounding conclusions about how people behave. Now, one of the observations I, would, I was thinking about, and it's it's an interesting testing thing here, is I tend to see that um, libertarians are very strict. You know, uh, the the short form term I use is Chicago School economists. Kahneman used the term the econs. And I tend to see libertarians, people who self-identify that way, being very much in that camp. But this is, once again, me being on the outside of libertarianism. Do you see that that's actually a true assertion? I'm not sure it is, actually. Um, I think that, I don't know if you saw a long, complicated exchange I had recently with Larry Kotlikoff about whether climate uh, whether carbon taxes can be a generational win-win. Yeah, you, you pointed it to me. I, yeah. I read your article on it. I haven't looked at the back and forth between the two of you. Well, it's really, it's really long and wonky. I actually had a shorter, <laughs> less wonky, a shorter, less wonky exchange with him more recently on that. But I, Kolikoff's thinking on that is very much what uh, the econ, as you call it. He's a true econ. And so he has this very elaborate model about the relationship among generations over time and so forth. But it's all based on the premise that everybody at every point in time always acts in their self-interest. And he has very simplistic uh, utility functions that guide everything that happens. And I think that that's a very narrow uh, way of viewing world. Uh, so I, mean, I, I would say... Kahneman got his Nobel Prize for his um, his models, which showed, which basically undermined the utility model of economics completely. Right. So right. it's uh, interesting that Kortlikoff is choosing to ignore that. Not that he's choosing to ignore it. I don't think it ever occurred to him <laughs> that there was any other way of looking at things. He, he is a true, you know, in the econs category. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, on that note, um, you know, Kahneman, I'm thinking about cognitive biases. I'm thinking about the ability to communicate. One of the last people that Zach and I ch spoke to, and Zach was just as animated on that discussion, unlike my discussion with Michael Mann recently, um, the, the person I had the conversation with was John Cook. Um, John Cook is the founder of the Skeptical Science site. He's a cognitive science PhD working at George Mason University. Mm -hmm. um, and he and I spoke about Kahneman quite a bit in terms of the cognitive biases. You know, John's book, uh, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, was just literally published yesterday. By, you know, so it's available oh, okay. now. And it's heavily informed by Kahneman in terms of how to effectively communicate. Okay to bypass cognitive biases. 
Um, and it's not wonky at all. It comes with cartoons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, worth, worth connecting with him at some point and having a discussion around that, I would suggest. Happy yeah. to, you know, broker that discussion with you. Okay. I'll take a look at it. Um, so an hour and a half. And what I want to do is just kind of give you the open-ended opportunity. So the audience, let's talk about the audience for Clean Technica. It is, you know, fairly heavily U.S. based. There's a, it's global, but 80% U.S. It is fairly heavily uh, techno. It's actually about 50% U.S. Oh, only 50? About 50% U.S., but um, the other 50% is very widely distributed, so there's no other really major. I mean, Canada, U.S., um, Canada, U.K., Australia, you know, English-speaking places tend to be then following, but it's, yeah. So you've got a 50% critical mass of United States audience, and it's an election year. Mm -hmm. um, they're techno-optimists for the most part. They love gee whiz technology, um, and they tend to be supporters of the Green Deal more than not. Okay. So that's framing the audience. If you had like 30 seconds just to say, these are the three things you want them to take away, what would those three things be? I would say, number one, if you want to do something about climate change, do whatever you want, but include carbon tax or some form of carbon pricing as part of your program. Don't leave it out. Uh, secondly, if you like the Green New Deal, uh, reread the Green New Deal with uh, a pencil in your hand and set some priorities, which is the most important thing in there. Is, uh, is it important to deal with the climate first or is it important to have guaranteed jobs first uh, or is it important to have health care first? Which of those in your minds is the most important solution? Because chances are you're not going to be able to solve all of those problems at once. And that's two items and that's good enough. Okay. Um, Ed, really, this has been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, have a chat with us. Um, I suspected, you know, as one of the last kind of point out in our thread was, I, th I felt that we could have a good conversation and a you know, broad and nuanced one, and that, that's proven to be the case. So um, appreciate it. Um, Zach, any last words for the audience? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I just, uh, I think the big takeaway for me is, I think if we get down into the details... I feel like the, the three of us probably agree on far more than we disagree on. And I think we would be surprised if we came to like writing legislation together or something, how much we would, how much we would find that easy to do and come together on. I, I think the biggest challenge that people like us face and, and uh, society faces, how much details get uh, transformed into generic talking points and then funneled into subcultural bubbles and end up with us fighting each other instead of um, realizing we agree probably far more than we disagree. And, and I think it, you know, a big challenge which you guys talked about is how do you get down to communicating to overall audience and to our specific uh, more targeted audiences and um, I think also when you're trying to talk to a target audience how do you not have that get uh, cherry picked and, and warped uh, for a totally different audience to make um, to, to cause the problems I just talked about because I feel like that's what happens a lot on both sides and it's very unfortunate because uh, we should really be working together more than uh, trying to start cultural wars. Well, um, yeah, thanks a lot. Ed, thank you. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep you posted when this goes live. 
All right. These are a very interesting conversation to me and uh, a lot of stuff for me to think over too. Excellent. Okay. Yep. Bye-bye. Take care all. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.